Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Carrie Cordero is the Robert M. Gates Senior Fellow and General Counsel at the Center for a New American Security. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law Center, a CNN analyst, and a contributing editor of Lawfare. Carrie has served in numerous senior positions at the Department of Justice and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Her research and writing focus on intelligence community oversight, transparency, surveillance, cybersecurity, and related national security law and policy issues. Carrie Cordero, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks. Great to be here. And also joining us is Ellie Honig. Ellie is a former state and federal prosecutor with extensive experience leading and managing criminal trials and appeals. In his work in the state of New Jersey and as a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, Ellie has directed major criminal cases against street gangs, drug trafficking organizations, illegal firearms traffickers, corrupt public officials, child predators, and white-collar criminals. He also serves as executive director of the Rutgers Institute for Secure Communities at Rutgers University. And in his spare time, Ellie is a CNN legal analyst where he just launched Cross-Exam, a new weekly column. And Ellie Honig, welcome back. Thank you. I feel like uh, I've accomplished something. I got asked back. Pleased <laughs> to be <right>. here. <laughs> All right. So let's just dive in. And I want to start with the uh, report's introductory sentence. And I'm going to read it. Quote, the Russian government interfered in the 2016 presidential election in sweeping and systematic fashion. Carrie, let's start with you. How significant is that first sentence? And is it getting lost? Well, I don't think that it's new. I mean, we know that the Russians interfered. Anybody who's paying attention uh, over the last year and a half knows that the Russians have interfered. Back in 2016, the intelligence community told us that the Russians were interfering. Um, the special counsel's indictments against the Internet Research Agency and other Russian intelligence agencies told us that the Russians were interfering. So uh, and current intelligence officials on an ongoing basis had told us that not have told us that not only did the Russians interfere with our election and democratic institutions in 2016, but they continued to do it through the 2018 midterm elections and they are continuing to do it. So I'm glad that it's at the beginning of the report so that if anybody missed that message over the last couple of years, it's there again for them to see. The report divides the Russian interference in the 2016 election into two different operations. And I want to go over both of them. But the first one is described as a Russian entity carried out a social media campaign that favored presidential candidate Donald J. Trump and disparaged presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. How important is that from an intelligence perspective? Well, there's a whole side of this investigation that the special counsel's office conducted that is both a historical counterintelligence investigation and, I'm going to presume, an ongoing intelligence investigation. So the report divided it into two parts. One, the social media efforts on the power, and which was the Russian intelligence activity, and two, the actual hacking that they did. The hacking was discrete acts that they did in the past. But the online presence and the online social media part is something that's an ongoing counterintelligence 
issue. I don't know whether or not there is a classified annex to this report, or whether there was some separate part of this report that might be going just to the intelligence committees of Congress, or how the special counsel hand is handling that piece of it. Maybe the special counsel and his team will go brief the intelligence committees in Congress separately. But there is a whole counterintelligence piece of this investigation that is a national security concern that was not in the report that was released yesterday. Carrie, and it may be hard to make this judgment, but how detrimental is it to a counterintelligence investigation operation when the president of the country uh, is undermining it, suggesting that it's it, it's not true or that the Russians say we didn't do it and I believe them? Does that have any, have any impact at all? Well, I think there's two different answers to that. So one is if I put on my former uh, DOJ hat, I know that the uh, national security lawyers and the agents and the analysts who are working on that and their intelligence community counterparts, that they would all say it probably doesn't matter, that they're, they have a national security mission as long as they have the support and direction from their agency leadership. So the FBI director, the director of national intelligence, the head of the CIA, all of the agencies that are involved in, in doing work in this space, as long as they have their support and they are and those leaders politically insulate that workforce, that these counterintelligence investigations and, and these national security matters will continue to be addressed by the intelligence community. Where I think it does matter is in the foreign policy space where if we have a president who to the rest of the world is the face of the United States and sets policy for the United States, when the president refuses to acknowledge it, then our adversaries see that. And it is a basically free card for them to continue to do the activities that they're doing in the future without fear of any type of consequences or accountability. Yeah, I mean, to break this down into the simplest terms that anyone can understand, it feels like the Russians uh, interfered with our election, may have swayed it in the direction of Donald Trump. And the president is saying, it's okay. There are no consequences. There's no punishment. And and we're not even going to try to stop you uh, going going forward. Well, and not only is the president not acknowledging um, that this activity took place in the past and, like I said, according to the intelligence community, is continuing, if Congress doesn't do anything in reaction to this report – and to the activities that the Trump campaign was engaged in, whether or not they rose to a level of criminal conspiracy, what does that say about our future campaigns? Is it okay for a U.S. presidential campaign to willingly and enthusiastically accept and solicit and continue to try to obtain the assistance and help of a hostile foreign power? The criminal laws, the criminal code isn't going to help us fix that. That is a bigger political problem. I spend a lot of time, I've worked on five presidential campaigns and a lot of time talking to, you know, my former colleagues. And there's something that just needs to be underlined again, how unusual this was. I can tell you that in any other campaign that I've worked in, and I could rest assured it was happening on the other side too, if a foreign power, particularly an adversary of the United States, made um, an entree into the campaign, the first place you'd go would be to the campaign's counsel uh, and and would be reported to the FBI. 
So while they, he may not be able to prove a criminal conspiracy, this was something so out of the ordinary that it should trouble uh, everyone. And, I, you know, the last thing in the world the American public should think is, oh, everybody does it because everybody doesn't do it. This is the – in fact, the only time I've ever heard anything like this before was in the 1980 campaign and, and ironically – it was Paul Manafort having improper contacts with the Philippines. And so I guess we should have been paying closer attention back then. It's not only wrong, it's out of the norm. And it has, like a lot of things with uh, Trump, it has broken the norm. So I want to pick up on Carrie's point about whether the criminal laws can give us the, the most helpful framework here to uh, deal with these issues. And I want to talk about collusion. And Ellie, I want to talk about the, the legal framework that the Mueller report set up. And, and there is no crime of collusion, as, as we've all talked about numerous times. But here's how the Mueller report introduces the topic. In evaluating whether evidence about collective action of multiple individuals constituted a crime, we applied the framework of conspiracy law, not the concept of collusion. Why is that significant? So conspiracy law and the criminal law in general is not a perfect fit for the kind of fact pattern that we saw here. I'm a big believer in and I have utmost faith in the power and fairness of our criminal justice system, but it doesn't always fix every wrong. And I think this is a good example. I don't think anyone would have any real qualm with the notion that, as we said, Russia hacked the election. They were trying to help Donald Trump win. Robert Mueller says that clearly. And as, as Robert Mueller said, and William Barr sort of, I, I think, conspicuously failed to, to actually cut out of one of the quotes he gave us, the Trump campaign expected to benefit electorally from the Russian hacking. That's paraphrased. So is it a crime? Not quite for reasons that Robert Mueller lays out. You don't quite have enough for conspiracy. I I think his analysis there is fairly sound. There are some legal theories which which might apply to the Trump Tower meeting, which we can talk about later if you'd like. But generally speaking, there wasn't quite enough done to bring the, the Trump people, for example, into the hacking, which would have been clearly a crime. But one of the important lessons here is I think what a lot of people are taking away, what I see uh, just out there in social media is no collusion, nothing happened, it doesn't matter, none of this matters. That the, the things that we know are still really bad and really important. The fact that our election was hacked, the fact that one of the campaigns eagerly expected and, and benefited from it, that's a big deal. Criminal law is not the best remedy for that. I think the, the, the remedy needs to be uh, to varying extents political and, and come out of the intel community. So here's what the report said on the Trump campaign's role. Quote, while the investigation identified numerous links between individuals with ties to the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign, the evidence was not sufficient to support criminal charges. And you just made the point that the criminal code is maybe not the best way to handle this type of conduct. But put on your prosecutor hat or even your Robert Mueller hat and your decision to bring any case as a prosecutor is to say, I've got enough here to get this across the line. So if you're looking at the facts as they're laid out in the report, do you disagree with Mueller? No. So there's a couple of interesting things here. One of the questions, and you'll get different answers from different lawyers, is what quantum of proof do you need before you indict a case in the grand jury? So let's start with that. The textbook answer is probable cause, which is quite a low standard. It, It just means more probable than not. So when you instruct a jury, you say, I've now given you the evidence on the crime of name your robbery. And if you find by a probable cause, if you find probable cause that that crime was committed, then you issue the indictment. 
As a practical matter, almost every prosecutor worth their salt uses a higher standard. A, because it's such a dramatic thing to charge someone with a crime. You need to be careful and sparing. And B, you want to win. If you bring a case, you want it to be a righteous case and you want it to be a case that's going to result in in a righteous conviction. So some people will say that we don't bring a charge unless we believe we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, you haven't been put to your your test yet. You haven't been cross-examined and that kind of thing. But generally speaking, when, when you put a case in the grand jury the way I was raised is you need to be at or very, very near beyond a reasonable doubt in order to even charge it. So what crimes might have been applicable here? Certainly, I think if if there was any evidence that anyone was involved in the hacking, which I don't think we have a clear shot on. But I will say this. Prosecutors have a lot of discretion in the way you define a conspiracy. And there would be an aggressive way to define this conspiracy to include not just the hacking, not just the going into the machines, but also the subsequent dissemination. I mean, that was part of the whole big picture here. You'd have an aggressive theory there, but you could argue that people who were involved after the hack in the dissemination, in in, in the targeting, that kind of thing could be part of a larger conspiracy. But it's an aggressive theory. It's a stretch. And and this kind of case, by the way, is not one where you want to stretch on. I think there's there are other crimes that could have applied to the Trump Tower meeting. And it's really interesting. I just reread this this morning. Mueller's analysis of the Trump Tower meeting and specifically Donald Trump Jr.'s potential exposure. And he says in fairly straightforward terms, this meeting gives rise to, to potential concerns over campaign finance violations, the, the, the violation being receiving a donation or contribution from a foreign national, which is a crime. Very rarely used, but it is a crime. And basically where Mueller comes out is, look, they never got the aid. They never The aid being the, the hacked emails. But they certainly wanted to and intended to and, and I would say agreed or conspired to as between the, the, certainly the three campaign side participants, Manafort, Kushner and Trump Jr. The problem is there is a – I don't want to get too legalistic here. But you have to show a very high and specific level of intent and knowledge for campaign finance crimes. Uh, and this is why when Trump was in, in trouble with the hush money payments, we saw the clips of him saying, I know more about campaign finance than anyone else and, and giving his play-by-play on the John Edwards campaign finance trial because people saw that and said, wow, he may be one of the few people who actually does have the right level of knowledge about campaign finance. But Mueller said we, we weren't able to prove that Donald Trump Jr. quite had that elevated level of knowledge of intent. But he, but he kind of dodged. He kind of skated on a little bit of a technicality. Can I follow up on one, the, the first legal point that Ellie was talking about, which is this issue of whether or not it would have been reasonable to charge mm-hmm. someone or take the extra step and, and use the more aggressive reading of the law to charge someone with dissemination of the hacked material. The reason that the special counsel's office would not have gone down that path is because the Justice Department has never charged any entity with disseminating or publishing classified information. So that would raise a whole new set of First Amendment issues. Um, That's what media organizations are very concerned about. um, It's it's at the center of the Julian Assange. Well, so so, uh, with the Assange case, so notably, the reason the Assange case does not go down that path. So there is a lot of writing and and commentary and worry um, from the First Amendment community and and some in the media that the Assange case is is a first step, but Assange was specifically not charged with disseminating or publishing the information. He took a – he is alleged to have taken a specific act in in the conspiracy to crack a password to help Chelsea Manning. So that's why they wouldn't want to go down that path. Carrie, from a public policy point of view, I I understand that you can't 
fix this in the courtroom. And it was very damaging that the Trump campaign sought this help and benefited from it. But from a public policy, what should Congress do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? It's, you know, putting somebody in jail here is not an option and might not deter anyone anyway. You know, maybe they need to look at reporting requirements for campaigns. You're probably more familiar with sort of the inner workings of campaigns for sure than I am. But maybe they need to look at reporting requirements and foreign contacts, for example, um, as part of the reporting requirements on oversight and regulation of how campaigns work. Maybe they need to look more at the campaign finance laws and evaluate what constitutes assistance. Maybe even the fact of simply starting to do some legislative work in this area and come up with some proposals could at least demonstrate that going into the next election, this behavior is not okay. What I think is most important in the next 18 months, and I'm because I'm not optimistic that Congress is actually going to pass law in this area, though, is that they engage in a way that demonstrates that this type of behavior is not okay, and that whether it's Russia or it's some other country that now might think that they are emboldened to approach campaigns. um, And there's a lot of campaigns now that are going to be on deck for 2020 um, that people aren't tempted to go down the path that the Trump campaign went down. Let me say about that. Where people get in trouble, I think, with these campaign finance and election law-based laws is when you're talking about your non-monetary donations. I think everyone understands that if you cut a check to Lockhart for Senate, don't rule it out, Joe. Um, everyone understands that that is a do- I'm making a donation to Joe's Senate campaign. I, but- I'll, I'll take it now. I mean, it's just, <laughs> a promise means nothing to me. Do you have a limit? Yes. Uh, but but when you get into things like well, we're getting hacked emails. Is that a contribution? It doesn't feel like your traditional one, but it certainly has pro- probably immense value. Or we're paying off a, a former mistress. Is that a contribution or not? And and I'll tell you, just because I thought it was such a smart example, very Northeast Corridor story. I was on an Amtrak about a month ago, and I recognized George Will, right, the famous commentator. And we started talking about baseball and then ended up talking about this stuff. And it was right when Michael Cohen was in the news. And he said, those campaign finance laws are ridiculous because there's an endless slippery slope. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, think about it this way. He said, what if a CEO decided he wanted to run for office? And we see that more and more now. And he decided... Well, in order to make me look good and help my campaign, uh, my company is going to start a new charitable foundation. And really his motive was to help his electoral prospects. And then the, the company starts funneling money in. Is that going to be seen as a campaign donation? Is it subject to the limits? Could it go over the limits? Does it need to be reported? I thought that was a pretty smart way to phrase that. So I don't have an easy solution, but people do get into trouble when you go beyond the here's a check to your campaign. I will tell you that having been through a lot of these campaigns and, and you see it in sort of the arms race and fundraising, Democrats for a long time were against unlimited. They argued vociferously against Citizens United. But they don't like losing elections. And if, and if they see that the other side, and this goes either way, is getting an advantage through something that's unethical but not illegal and or you can't get punished for, they will do it. I guarantee you. And there are just as many countries out there that would like to see a Democratic candidate in the White House and see Trump has disadvantaged a, a, a number of countries. And that's why I think it, it's got to stop. We could talk all day about the collusion aspect of this, but we want to get to the obstruction section as well. So under the special counsel regulations, 
Robert Mueller was supposed to submit a confidential report to the attorney general that included his prosecutorial decision making as either a decision to prosecute or a declination. How does volume two square with that requirement of the regulations? Well, I think what many of us were expecting to see in the memo, and it was in the attorney general's discretion to release it. So he he has fulfilled that part of his public commitment to releasing a good part of the report. I expected it to be, a pro- like you said, a prosecution and declamation memo explaining everything that the special counsel's office investigated and how they made their uh, recommendations to either prosecute or not prosecute on certain things. And on the declinations as it provide- pertained to a private citizens, there perhaps would be some information that was redacted um, so as not to impugn those people. Where the most interesting issue has come out with the release of the report as compared to Attorney General Barr's March 24th letter is on the issue of obstruction. And here, where many of us former Justice Department lawyers, I think, have been surprised and and confused over the last few weeks why the special counsel did not make a recommendation on obstruction based on a reading of the attorney general's letter, it was confusing um, to understand how he would have taken his mandate to not require a recommendation one way or another. Um, And that's because the attorney general's letter gave the misimpression, we know now, that the special counsel was struggling over the facts, or the special counsel's team, I should say, was really wrestling, seriously wrestling with the facts that they had uncovered in the obstruction investigation and whether or not those facts satisfied the criminal elements of obstruction. Upon reading the report, that is exactly not the case. And what the report reveals is that the special counsel's team, perhaps early on, I think this is a little unclear in it, but maybe early on in the investigation at the start of their work, determined that as a legal matter, they could not make a recommendation because they were bound by existing Department of Justice policy, a legal opinion that said that a sitting president can't be indicted. And so they took that as a limitation on their even authority to make a recommendation on obstruction. So then what they said instead is, so we're going to conduct an investigation and we're going to gather facts and we're going to preserve a record and develop evidence while memories are fresh because Congress still has a role. Basically, they said that a president, no one is above the law And so they then provided this as a mechanism that then Congress would be able to take up. They did not. I do not think it is an accurate representation now that we see the report to say that the special counsel punted to the attorney general, which is what a lot of commentators were saying after the uh, attorney general's letter came out. The special counsel did not punt to the attorney general. The attorney general did not have to make the finding that he made with the deputy attorney general. Um, Instead, he could have done nothing and just allowed the factual record that the special counsel's team created to be provided to Congress for it to consider on its end. You're very kind to say he created the misimpression. (laughs) So I want to cut that down a little bit. Is what Barr did in and of itself, part of the obstruction? I don't think Barr's guilty of obstruction of justice. But I'm not I think, whether he's guilty or yeah, not. No. But is it part of an well, overall effort to obstruct what Mueller found and shape it, shape a narrative in a way that created 
uh, a false impression as opposed to maybe a misimpression. I think what Bill Barr did on the obstruction is his biggest scam. And and my opinion of him has gone from uh, fairly positive when he came in. He's got very strong credentials. Uh, he 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 seems to bring a lot of gravitas that was badly needed in that position. But boy, ever since has just gone straight downhill with every time he's opened his mouth or put pen to paper. And, and obstruction, I think, was the biggest trick he pulled of all. He did two things that were incredible when you look back at them now that Carrie said, first of all, he he picked off this inquiry and he wasn't even straight about it. Right. When he was asked at his testimony last week, he was asked, did Robert Mueller ask you to make that decision? And he said no. And that part was true. Robert Mueller certainly did not ask. And then someone said, did Robert Mueller uh, intend for this to go to Congress? And and there's this clip of Barr and he kind of pauses. He's a bad, bad liar. Pauses for three seconds and he says, uh, mm, he didn't say anything to me. And I'm thinking, how about in writing? Please ask the follow up. Did he put it in writing? And then you get the report and he effectively says, Congress, this is – in your area now to, to handle. So I think he, he totally changed the entire landscape by picking it off. And the second big scam that he pulled, that's my word, but Carrie also pointed this out, is the way he misstated 90 minutes before we all saw the report. Uh, Barr got up in front of the cameras and said, no, 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 the DOJ policy that you cannot indict a sitting president, that did not have to do with Mueller's indecision. Mueller's indecision was caused because the facts and the law were so muddled and so close. Then you read the report and, and it's just Mueller in this wrestling match with this policy that has tied him in a knot. And he ends up, he, I wish he wasn't quite as cagey, Mueller, as he was in his report. He ends up with this almost sphinx-like triple negative where he says, well, the policy does not allow me to indict. So if I found that I could indict, I wouldn't tell you and I'm not telling you. It's like, wait, where does that leave us exactly? Like, I think he could have said, yes, I because of our policy, we will not indict. But I was asked to, to make a full evaluation here and my special counsel mandate, the, the regs say I'm to make prosecutorial or, or declination decisions. And so here's my analysis. And I come out that if this person was indictable, I would indict him. Now, we can't. And Congress, you have to take it from here if you deem fit. Right. So I I would have liked to have seen a little more clarity given the stakes. I'm going to ask you the same question I did in the first section. In the second section, putting your prosecutor hat on and looking at the legal theory here that it is in volume two Mm -hmm. under the statute of obstruction, 1512, I think, um, meeting those criminal requirements, including intent. Is it obstruction itself or is it attempted obstruction? And does it meet those requirements. So either one would be a crime, obstruction, or, or attempted obstruction. So let's, you, you don't have to be good at it. Yeah, charged, exactly. Right? Exactly. Right. Yeah, you just you have to do it. You but don't, but you I will can just say, endeavor to do it. Yeah. Yes. But I will say, as a prosecutor, a crime is always more attractive from the charging perspective if it was completed. Right. A jury cares more if it was completed. But attempt is always a, a crime as well as the completed act, whether you're good at it. Or it and we're not it, just talking about one act. We're talking about he went at it ten yeah. different yeah. ways so, at least. No, so but my, it's, it's yeah. a little bit like if you get caught robbing a bank. Sure. Are you not going to get convicted? because you didn't take any money. My my starting point is simple. This is an overwhelming case for obstruction. Uh, 10, 11 acts, any one of them standing alone could do it. You take all of them. I'm interested to see Carrie's view as well. You take all of them. That is an overpowering obstruction case. But let's tick through some of the defenses that have been put out there. First of all, and I don't quite agree with Mueller on this, right? Mueller says in the report, he was, I'm paraphrasing, but 
well, the president was kind of saved because so many people resisted or defied him. But I go back to how about attempt? So there's that. The president's team and Bill Barr espouse this theory of the president cannot obstruct by law because he's in charge of the executive branch. It's his plaything. He can do whatever he wants. Robert Mueller actually shoots that down really decisively and I think correctly in his memo. And then there's the gold medal winner for ridiculous responses to obstruction, which is Barr yesterday at the press conference saying, well, the president felt angered and frustrated by being targeted for, for this. I mean, yeah, guess who obstructs justice? People who feel angry and frustrated uh, and who feel threatened. I, I saw that and I thought, God, if I only had thought of that defense in 1998, right. things might have gone different, <laughs> which is, well, guys, the president's just upset. Yeah, it's called and, the, yeah. the boo-hoo defense. Yeah. It would have been a very strong case for obstruction as I see it overall. So a few things. So first of all, on obstruction, um, one area where I felt somewhat vindicated as someone who's, uh, you know, been out talking about this case based on publicly available information over the course of the last year and a half or so, which is that the special counsel reinforced what many of us were saying publicly, which is that the pattern of obstruction was very relevant in terms of the analysis. In other words, it wasn't just the firing of Jim Comey or just the pressuring of Jeff Sessions, but it is appropriate in making an obstruction analysis, the special counsel's report says, to take into account what was a pattern of activity on behalf of the president. And so I was glad to see that in the report. I read the special counsel's analysis to contradict the attorney general even making that determination. So in other words, I think the special counsel's office and the attorney general and deputy attorney general's office, whether or not they discussed it fulsomely enough, they had a severe legal disagreement over whether or not that prosecutorial recommendation could even be made by Justice Department attorneys. And the attorney general didn't explain that at all. He just said, I'm the attorney general, so I can do it. But the special counsel's memo lays out a detailed analysis of why they felt, as Department of Justice prosecutors, they couldn't do it. And so I think Attorney General Barr is going to have to answer to that when he eventually goes before Congress. A quick point just on the role of the attorney generals. I heard from Washington lawyers yesterday across a broad spectrum of political and ideological affiliations all of whom have a deep respect for the Justice Department and all of whom were deeply dismayed by the attorney general's performance at his press conference in terms of uh, the extraneous statements that he made about the media, the extraneous defense of uh, the president's mental state. He had a real opportunity to rise above it. And I frequently said about attorney general Sessions that no matter how much one may disagree even vehemently with his policies or um, different decisions he made about different enforcement activities while he was attorney general on the most important job that attorney general Sessions had, which was to recuse from the investigation, he made the right decision. For a long time, I've thought that attorney general Barr took this job knowing that the most important decision he would ever make as attorney general 
would be his handling of this report. And I think he has not lived up to many people's expectations. So I'm going to ask a question, but just pretend I'm like a member of Congress because it's really going to sound like a statement. See, it, he's already be, running, Ellie. Because, because it is a statement. <laughs> and feel free at the end to like say, thank you, Your Honor. No, but, we, we used to prep people for congressional testimony. Yeah, it's the answer like, is, thank you, Senator. Yeah, listen, I, again, <laughs> as, as someone who has been involved in trying to craft communication strategies and political strategies, it's extraordinary what's gone on in the last month. We now, with the benefit of hindsight, could see that Bill Barr, the most important decision he had, he made it a year ago. He made it a year ago and he wrote that memo, 19-page memo saying the obstruction of justice is complete, to use the words of Donald Trump from uh, Twitter, is complete bullshit. And, and he believed that. It's why he got the job. He then went up and stonewalled Congress – um, and I, I think outright lied to Congress uh, as far as how he was going to approach the job, did what he needed to do to get confirmed. And then he proceeded to implement a, a political strategy for getting the president off the hook. And it involved a letter that I hope is is taught at every law school, for every law student, for anyone who takes the bar going forward of how not to administer justice where he completely mischaracterized what the independent counsel did as part of a political strategy to help the president. He then issued another letter. He then went back to the Hill, both sides, and again misrepresented. Uh, and then in an extraordinary step that is only done you know, in political campaigns, he went out and had a pre-brief for a report that wasn't out yet and told everyone, here's what the report says, knowing that every television network, every newspaper all around the world for two hours, that would be the only information they'd have. And everyone would start their day. And, you know, as, as I like to say, the, uh, the cement of conventional wisdom dries quickly in Washington. And it was so audacious that it failed. And I think it has failed. And I think if we stay after it, don't worry, there's a question in here. I got to think of one now because I'm getting to the end of my statement. <laughs> you can just, just turn it, to us and say thoughts. Yeah, it's, it's, it, Five it, seconds but, left. Yeah, it is, <laughs> it, it is outrageous. Um, I want everyone to know for the record, since you can't see, I've gone full Jim Jordan here. I've taken my jacket <laughs> off. I've rolled up my sleeves. Um, anyway, thoughts. Yeah. I mean, Carrie, go first. A mark in Bill Barr's corner is that he released the report, most of it. I mean, we, we did – there was a scenario that the report was going to be so heavily redacted that it would be unintelligible or that he would have come in and, and not fulfilled what he said in his confirmation he was going to – hearing he was going to do. Me, do you think Mueller was smart enough or had the foresight on obstruction not to grand jury the people for this very reason that it would make it hard to bury this? Oh, right. So a lot of the information was was not in the grand jury. It was, was this, you know, I, I, it's hard to say um, whether or not those people were simply willing to uh, be interviewed. And, and the White House did permit them to be interviewed. So that would have been uh, the first choice of the prosecutors would be to just interview them. So it's hard. It's a little bit hard to judge whether or not that factored in versus it was absolutely a strategy. I think it would have been the prosecutor's preference. Yeah, you know, I think I agree with you on that issue. Yeah. The, the one thing I will give Barr credit for is the redactions. I think they were limited and appropriate. But other than that, 
I'm 100% out on the guy. I think he, he has exposed himself as a complete political hack. And there's a famous clip of an NFL coach from a few years ago that his team lost the game and he, and he goes on this rant and he says, they, they were what we thought they were, right? I mean, William Barr is what we thought or should have known that he was. And it goes back to that memo, right? And then the failure to recuse himself to me is something I'll never understand because I'm just putting myself back in a prosecutor's office when I was a supervisor. If, if one of the prosecutors who I supervised said, so here's the deal. Um, I wrote a scathing editorial in the local newspaper about – it happens to be about this exact case. I said, get out of my office and get me that file and then never touch it again. I mean that's a no-brainer. And now you're talking about the most important case in the country and the top law enforcement officer. And he somehow managed – I know the DOJ ethics officers said it was OK, but I don't know how they got there. And Rod Rosenstein has, has a bizarre recusal issue too. I don't know how he didn't recuse himself. But but Barr, like you said, Joe, I think you can study this guy if you want to if you want to see how strategic omissions, misstatements, slanting, and really outright dissembling at times. And by the way, it worked. It worked. Think of how much different the public landscape is. William Barr could have done the following: he could have gotten Robert Mueller's report, said, "I need a week. I'm going to do redactions, and then you're going to get it, and then put it out there." You know what the headline would have been? Mueller refers obstruction inquiry to Congress for potential impeachment. The whole world looks different if he does it that way. But he did it in this multi-staged rollout where he kept setting the table and setting the table and framing the conversation three, four times. All the letters, the congressional testimony, the press conference was just the topper. Uh, And so he has done an enormous political service for for the president. Well, and, you know, there may be a legal definition of obstruction of justice. But let me give you the political definition. It's what Barr did. He obstructed the free release of this report. He obstructed the average American's ability to read this report without prejudice by telling people multiple times what the results of the report were and telling people things that were false. If it's not addressed then I think we're, we've set a new precedent for attorney generals. You know, we're going to have political hacks sitting uh, in that office. But I think, you know, we'll see Mueller. We'll see Barr on the Hill. And I, I suspect that the Democrats won't try to remove Barr, but they will certainly put a censure motion uh, on the floor, which for 15 or 20 Republicans in uh, suburban districts around the country, that's going to be a tough vote. But to preview Mueller uh, on the Hill. What should we look for? Instead of like with Ken Starr, when the Starr report came out, everything calmed down a little. This is going to reach a new crescendo of, of drama with you know Bob Mueller finally able to speak in public. And there's this disparity, enormous disparity between the attorney general's letter and what the report actually says specifically on obstruction. I would urge Congress to rethink the calendar. Right now, I think Attorney General Barr is scheduled to appear before the, the Senate and then a House on May 1st and 2nd. And then I think I heard Chairman Nadler say that they were maybe expecting to call the special counsel a couple weeks later. I think they ought to call the special counsel first and because that will be the truthful, unabridged, responsive explanation of, of what work the special counsel's office did and how and what their analysis was on the obstruction piece in particular. And I think that will be more informative to Congress. And then based on what the special counsel says, I think that would 
do better to inform the questions for the attorney general. If they invite the attorney, if they stick with this current schedule and have the attorney general first, he's just going to say the same things that he said in his prior testimony and in his press conferences. And and why do that? Yeah, I suspect that when Nancy Pelosi gets the caucus on the phone, that this will become part of the strategy of how this, the, how it's sequenced and exactly the point you've made is going to be um, on her agenda. So boy, would I like a shot at questioning William Barr. Boy, he's left himself wide, wide open. But I think with Robert Mueller, don't expect much for two reasons. One, he is a a very stiff-lipped, understated, conservative, lowercase c type of guy. There's not going to be any dramatics. He's going to say as little as humanly possible. And the second reason is Congress people are not very good at questioning. We sit there and watch this testimony and we're going crazy. If I'm, if I'm ever watching in a green room and there's other prosecutors, go, ask this. Just ask one question at a time. Why don't you follow up with that? But there are interesting questions that, I, that I, I'm looking forward to seeing Robert Mueller ask. And my first one would go right to the obstruction inquiry. Did you ever ask Bill Barr to, to make this decision for you? No. Did you intend for Congress to take a look? I mean, and then you read him as pieces of his report. I don't know how he gets around that. I'm sure he would try to demur a little bit, but um, th- they'll both be interesting. But Barr could be really explosive. He is he has left himself so wide open. Whether anything ultimately comes of it, other than a censure motion, I don't know. But his reputation is tarnished for all time. Yeah, I think you know, in the pipe dream world, I, I tweeted at Chairman Nadler, please, please, do it differently this time. Let counsel spend the first day asking the questions and then let the members ask. But listen, I think uh, Mueller's opening statement could be dramatic uh, because even if you're under understated, just him making the points, I think he'll try to anticipate and answer many of the questions in his opening statement so he can just refer back right. consistently to, as I said in my opening statement, X, Y, Z. All right. Well, we could talk about this all day and we know you have busy schedules doing just that. So thank you both very much for joining us today. Thanks. Great to be with you. Appreciate yeah, thanks it. Thanks, guys. Fun. So, Joe, as we do with every episode, we want to hear what you're thinking about what's been going on. And this is my favorite part of the podcast, <laughs> by too. the way. Yeah. Uh, so I want to start out with uh, something you tweeted. President Trump could have had a very good day or at least a relatively better one. He could have rolled out this big calm strategy saying, you know, yes, Russia interfered in our elections and this is how we're going to combat it. And here's some brand new sanctions. And by the way, yes, I do have a temper sometimes, but my staff knows how to deal with that. I mean, what's your take on on the comms strategy that could have been? I understand their comms strategy, which is you can't trust the president. So you have to wait till he tweets and then try to fill in behind it. You can't plan a strategy. But as someone who instinctually looks at any situation and say, okay, you know, how do we how do we work through this? There was an obvious way to make the best of yesterday. And it was not what Bill Barr did and their construct in this. And I think it would have been very simple, which is point one, thank Bob Mueller for what he did. Because what Bob Mueller did over the last two years was not a witch hunt. Was he very thoroughly detailed the Russian government's trying to influence our democracy. And it's insidious. It's ongoing. And Mueller has done more than anyone, at least to inform the public, on what happened. And I think he should have thanked him for that. And I think he should have acknowledged that this is an important uh, issue, that we're under attack. And when America's under attack... We don't sit idly by. We fight back. And I think he could have said, Vladimir Putin, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. He lied to me. He's going to pay an incredibly high price 
for lying to me and for what their government's done. Here are 10 new sanctions um, that we're imposing today, and we are looking at more. He is a hostile power. It would have shown the president accepting that uh, there is this threat to uh, our government and being strong in combating it. We didn't see any of that. On the obstruction, I'm not in the business of giving them advice. I, I really don't want them politically to succeed. I want the country to succeed. So you want to be behind the president in some way. But there was, a, you, you know, you, you referenced it. All he had to do was make a virtue of his own temperament and say, everybody knows I'm a little crazy. And I say a lot of nutty stuff. And, but I have really good staff. It's one of the reasons why I keep my, my kids around. And I've got people who are close to me and they know the difference between when I'm telling them to do something and when I'm blowing off steam. And frankly, I, there's nothing that compares to this as far as obstructing justice. But anyone who's worked in the White House who's been in a serious position has been yelled at by the president and, and has, been the, has heard something nutty coming out of the president's head of, you ought to do this or you ought to call that person. And you just sort of say, yay, I'll get right on it. And then you just hope it doesn't come up again. So there was a way of positioning this stuff that accepted a little bit of responsibility for the situation, but could have propelled him in a way where it was the beginning of getting past it. But they continue to follow this strategy of attack, which means we've set this thing up as, well, the report's now out, but boy, I can't wait till Mueller testifies. And then when Mueller testifies, we'll say, oh, I can't wait till Bill Barr testifies. And, oh, I can't wait till Rod Rosenstein's book comes out. And, boy, I can't wait. You know, they are perpetuating this in a way where they think it helps them, but it's not. So the other thing that came out was comments and and information about Press Secretary Sarah Sanders and her behavior and some of the things that she has said in her briefing. And it came out yesterday that – She explained some of the comments she made in her briefing, including that numerous FBI officials had had called the White House to complain about Comey. And she said, quote, that they were not based on anything. I believe that's the correct quote. How would you have handled that? And what do you think about what she said? When she said that thing, she said, I've spoken to countless FBI agents about uh, their uh, hostility towards Comey. At the time, I said it was a lie because I knew it was a lie because the White House press secretary is forbidden to speak to FBI agents. It's one of the few things that's like written down that the White House counsel tells you that when you need information from the FBI, unless it's on like budget matters where you're doing a budget briefing and you're working with justice, you work through the White House counsel's office. You do not go directly to the director of the FBI. You do not go to field agents. You do not do fact finding. She knew this. And she decided to say that anyway. So anyone who's been in there on the White House knew instantly that it was a lie. One of the things we found out, not just with Sarah Sanders, is the only time you know you're getting the truth is when you're under oath, with the exception of Mike Flynn and, you know, Paul Manafort. Uh, It looks like in this case they talked to a lot of people uh, who actually told the truth only because they were under oath. The entire pathos of uh, Sanders and the communication strategy is based on the cult of personality of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump's pathos is based on lying, saying anything, anytime, 
to try to position himself in a positive way. It is not moored to any underlying truth. It never has been. So in her defense, she is a perfect press secretary in one sense for Donald Trump because he lies and then she lies for him. I can't tell you how personally this sickens me. It is the being the White House press secretary is a privilege. It is something that I will always treasure, you know, my little slice of it for a couple of years. It is a hard job because you tell the truth. It's not hard to lie, but you have this responsibility and you all, you kind of feel the responsibility if you're doing it the right way to the reporters, but it's not to the reporters, it's to the public. And, you know, you you may get angry at them from time to time or every day and go back and forth. I had this conversation last night with April Ryan about we used to fight all the time. But April never thought, she said, I never thought you were lying to me. And I said to her, I never thought you were fake news. It wasn't part of the conversation. I, I believed that you were going to do your best, which sometimes wasn't good enough for me. And she believed that I was doing my best uh, to tell her the truth. And, and that's real. And that's crumbled. And if there aren't consequences – the law of physics in politics will be that the next people will do the same thing. Whatever works, people will do. Politics is – it's not an immoral business, but in a large sense, it's an amoral business. It's I will do what I need to do to get elected because if I get elected, I can really help what I want. But then I got to get reelected and it, it's a vicious cycle. So that's why I think there needs to be consequences. One of the more personal moments I had – uh, when I was in the White House, because of, you know, we're, we're around the 20th anniversary of Columbine, I got to know Jim and Sarah Brady very well. Jim Brady was Ronald Reagan's press secretary and very early in his presidency when there was the assassination attempt on him, Jim Brady was shot. I was a sophomore in college and I was walking into the dorm and they had the radio on and they said, Jim Brady has passed away and the room stopped and it turned out not to be true, which is an amazing thing. But the fact that here's a guy who put his life on the line and not only put his life on his line, he could have descended into self-pity after that. But what he did was he devoted his life to trying to make the world a better place and a safer place. And after Columbine, you know, we were sitting around and trying to figure out what can we do? We were working Congress. And one of the ideas that um, I came up with was, you know, one of the things we can do is symbolic. We can rename the briefing room after Jim Brady. And we did it. And it was one of the best days. It was probably the best day I had at the White House because Jim and Sarah came in, the president. And there's a plaque up on the wall now. And she she disgraces it every day when she gets to that podium and breaks the tradition of every White House press secretary going back to Ron Ziegler, who was the last serial liar. I don't have a lot of use for some of the people who've had the job. Some of them I love. Some of them I love personally. And they did their best. But, you know, it's Nixon's press secretary and now Trump's press secretary who are serial liars who do a disservice and make the rest of us and make the, the service that all of these people have provided. It demeans it. It diminishes it. Can we do anything about it? Probably not because she only uh, reports to an audience of one. But it's just wrong. You also tweeted that after the report came out and we found all of that out, that Sarah Sanders will never walk back into that room and give another briefing. I don't think she will. I mean, I, don't, I just don't see how she can. And I'm not saying she's going to get fired or resign. She hasn't briefed in a month and a half. And I just think that this will be the thing that kills the briefing. And that's a shame. 
All right, Joe. Well, we always enjoy hearing your thoughts at the end of each episode. Thank you. And finally, we want to thank our friends and partners at the Hangar Studios. Since we launched, Words Matter has been recorded and produced by Jennifer Ho. Chad Dugatz and the entire Hangar Studios team. They're total pros. The Hangar Studios will help you find your voice, find your audience, and deliver that top-notch audio quality needed for success in the podcast world. If you have a podcast you're trying to get off the ground, go to www.thehangarstudios.com and book a session. Thanks to Jennifer Chad and the entire team, we've been able to get our podcast off the ground with people we love working with. That's www.thehangarstudios.com. The Hangar Studios speak freely. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.